Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. And grab a seat. We've got a space reserved for you here in the luxurious corner booth at the Catholic Cafe. Welcome, everyone. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm sitting here with Tom Dorian. Tom, you ready for a big show? I'm ready. Got my seat. I'm, I'm hanging on. <laughs> is it going to be a bumpy ride? It's not necessarily going to be a bumpy ride. Okay. But it is going to be a fun ride. Always a fun ride with you in the booth. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that, little, that snappy conversation. Little, yeah, a little delay reaction. Sorry about that. <laughs> I to, haven't had my donut yet. <laughs> Your six donuts? Yeah. Uh, when you have those, let me know, and I'm sure we'll be looking forward to those snappy comments. I'll make sure I keep them far from you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I know you're going to reach across I'm the table. hungry. I can tell. Anyway... Let's yes. talk about relics. Let's. Let's talk about relics. Relics, you know, they have a, a, a rightful and um, divinely intentioned place in God's plan in the Catholic Church. And a lot of people misunderstand relics and how the Catholic Church views relics. I can see how a lot of people would misunderstand that. Well, the, what we want to do is we want to talk about where the teaching on relics comes from, the concept. We would love to hear that. And specifically about veneration of relics. Right. Um, not just the fact that we prize the bodies of the saints or the, mm-hmm. uh, the things that the saints used in their lifetimes, mm-hmm. but that we venerate those relics. Right. Uh, now You're going to define that for us, we, correct? Well, we'll go ahead and say it now that we want to make sure everyone understands on the front end okay. that we venerate, we respect, we esteem, right. but we don't adore. Right. Adoration belongs only to God. We understand that as first and foremost in to our no thought process. Right. That's exactly right. So we do want to mention that right off the bat. But we also want to point out that all through history, churches have been built over the graves of saints. Correct. The martyrs. Right. Right? And usually the altar is sitting over the body of the martyr. Wherever the martyr Mm -hmm. is laid to rest, there's an altar sitting over that. St. Peter's Basilica is that way. Right. The high altar at St. Peter is sitting right over the bones of St. Peter. Right. And uh, also inside the actual altars, mm-hmm. there'll relics. be relics. Right. And all of these things are uniting the life of that martyr and the death of that martyr to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And we're all members of the body of Christ. And there's sort of a unification there, sort of an identification with uh, Christ's suffering. Mm-hmm. And so all of this stuff comes together. And it helps us understand the church's teaching on relics. And what I wanted to do is read a little bit from the Council of Trent 400 years ago. And the Council of Trent beautifully and simply sums up the Catholic Church's teaching on relics. Now, this was in the uh, 25th session of the Council of Trent. The holy bodies of holy martyrs and of others now living with Christ which bodies were the living members of Christ and the temple of the Holy Ghost, and which are by him to be raised to eternal life and to be glorified, are to be venerated by the faithful. For through these bodies, many benefits are bestowed by God on men. Then it goes on to say that those who affirm that veneration and honor are not due to the relics of the saints or that these and other sacred monuments are uselessly honored by the faithful and that the places dedicated to the memories of the saints are in vain visited with the view of obtaining their aid, those people are wholly to be condemned 
as the church has already long since condemned and also now condemns them. So it's reiterating mm-hmm. there the church's definitive teaching about the veneration of relics and the value of the veneration of relics. Now, we, we also like to go back to the basics, back to the foundations, and, and explain what it is or where it comes from mm-hmm. so that people know, oh, so that's what the Catholic Church teaches about relics. Yeah, it wasn't some, something that somebody just dreamed up here recently. That's exactly right. So what we want to do first is we're going to go back and just look at some scriptures here because we love to look at scripture because scripture gives us a great idea uh, for all of the church's teachings, Correct. where they come from. Mm-hmm. And the first one we want to look at here is where Paul is talking about our bodies specifically. Right, okay. and, and when he's talking to the Corinthians, in the first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So we're God's temple. Okay, that's an important note there. He also says the same thing uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? Mm-hmm. And, of course, he also reiterates this concept in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so we as Catholics have a special understanding of this being a temple for God because we receive Jesus, the true and living God, within us, within our bodies, when we receive the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So we see ourselves as a temple. Well, obviously, that temple is going to be a holy place, right? So our bodies are holy. So you got this saint; he's been his body has been divided up. It's all it's all over the world in different churches and well, pieces of it, right? Yeah. So is that why would that not be considered some kind of desecration? Well, not for use for a holy purpose. That wouldn't be desecration. Desecration, by definition, would be to to ruin something, to tear something up. It's not about a complete whole body mm-hmm. right it's about revering that body okay so whether you're revering just uh in the case of saint thomas's finger mm-hmm. right or uh some saint's tongue or uh perhaps just a sliver of a of a fragment of a bone mm-hmm. which most relics are you're revering the body you're revering the saint and you're asking for that saint's intercession Remember, the saints are still alive because they're alive in Christ and, and, and always members of the body of Christ. And, you know, St. Paul tells us that intercessory prayer is a great thing. And so they can always intercede for us. And so we can pray to those saints in addition to praying directly to Jesus, directly to God. Yeah. And so now we also note that in the Psalms, there's uh, Psalm 116, uh, verse 15, we read, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so... Now we have the concept that our bodies are temples, and these martyrs, these people that gave their lives, these holy ones who died, are extremely precious, and God loves them, right? And so there we can start to say, well, I can see where our bodies are holy things. Mm -hmm. Now you might say, well, how do you make the leap from having a holy body to a body that needs to be venerated? Mm -hmm. And that can be a difficult concept uh, for many. But what we want to do is let's look at some scriptures and see if that's the case. Let's see if there's any time in scripture, Old and New Testament, where God has used something other than the words or other than himself to bring about some kind of healing or bring about some some sort of uh, grace, right? 
And let's go back to the Old Testament first. Okay. Let's read uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And there we read, Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. So Elisha uses the mantle or the cloak of Elijah to part these waters. Now that's an important concept there. Because this is not Elisha saying some words, right, and asking God to part the waters. He touches the waters with Elijah's cloak. Which, is that considered to be a relic? Yeah. Okay. Well, we haven't talked about this, but there are right. different kinds of relics. Correct. Right? There's relics that are actually pieces and parts of the body. Correct. So like hair. Mm-hmm. Bones. Bones and uh, blood, things like that. Right. Right? That's a first-class relic. Second-class relics would be uh, things that the saint actually touched or used in their lifetime. Right. Right? Uh, and then, of course, third-class relics would be an item or an object that has touched a first-class relic. And so here in this situation... Elisha is using a second-class second class relic. relic. That's right. Which, you know, it's not defined in the Bible, but the, the church does this so that we understand the hierarchy of things and, and right. the order of things and the purpose of things. It's defining it for us and helping us uh, and leading us closer to a relationship with God than we would have been without the church. So, um, so Elisha uses something, an inanimate object, mm-hmm. to do a great work for God. Now, it's important also to note that the inanimate object, right, that the cloak is not what is powerful. That cloak does not have any power. It, it has the power to be a cloak. It has the power to be a mantle. It, has, <laughs> it can keep the rain off your shoulders, mm-hmm. right? That's its only power. God is who works the miracles. God is who uh, provides the power. Only that article is sort of the conduit. It's the tool that God uses. Right. Let's look at another example. After Elisha's death, okay? Second Kings chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, lo, a marauding band was seen, and the man was cast into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and mm. stood on his feet. So a man comes to life, by touching the bones of Elisha. Mm-hmm. So God is very clear here that you can use the bones of a great man like Elisha or the mantle of Elijah to the benefit of others as a conduit for God's grace. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's an important concept. But it's not just going to be Old Testament stuff. There's some really good New Testament things. First of all, let's look at uh, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 56, and we see... And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and besought him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, this is Jesus' garment. Mm -hmm. So this is not Jesus, his physical presence, healing them. Yes, they were healed because Jesus was there and through his authority and through his power. But it's because they touched his cloak. Right. Right? And so now you're starting to think, well, it's possible that God could invest himself, his power, his authority, and use these these objects to our benefit. Sure. So let's look also now at chapter 8 in Luke, 
read this little short story. As he went, the people pressed around him. Of course, we're talking about Jesus again. And a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the multitudes surround you and press upon you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone forth from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So this woman touches his cloak, Mm -hmm. and she's healed. Now, notice that Jesus asked, who was it that touched me? And he tells us that he felt the power coming out of him. But Luke tells us that the woman didn't actually touch him, but his cloak. So touching Jesus' cloak, an inanimate object that touched him, is the same as touching him. He was healing someone through his authority, through his power. It was all Jesus' power, Right. right? It was God that was healing this woman, but it was because she touched his cloak. Right. And so that's an important thing. Now, here's some other really good ones I want to really quickly get to. Um, in the ninth chapter of Acts, we find out that handkerchiefs of Paul had healing power. Hmm. Right, these are hankies, right? Yeah. Okay. And God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, you can't tell me that if you had a handkerchief Big stuff. from in the next town and someone said, hey, this was on Paul's person mm-hmm. and he handed it to me and I'm going to put it on this sick person. That sick person gets healed. You can't tell me they're going to spend a little time thinking about that handkerchief and, 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 and uh, you know, wondering about God, seeing right. God in, in awe and wonder and the splendor of God's healing power that God chose to use his healing power through this handkerchief, but actually it's like God to Paul to the handkerchief to the to the person that needs to be healed. Yep. And so, yeah, you would kind of treat that handkerchief a little special. And I'm sure there's probably some church somewhere that's got a handkerchief of Paul in it somewhere. Yeah. You know? And then, of course, there's another great one where it's not even necessarily a handkerchief. In fact, it's merely Peter's shadow. Listen to Acts chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and pallets. And as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So Peter's healing people with his shadow. Mm -hmm. And so this concept that God can use the bones of a saint, the belongings of a saint, mm-hmm. garments, Hankies. items, handkerchiefs. God, in his majesty and power, can use these things to benefit those who need it. Mm-hmm. And so we have lots more to talk about. Relics, the veneration of relics. And uh, if you don't want to become a relic yourself before your time, you'll want to come back right after this. I'm Bester Zimski, and this is another great moment in church history. St. Helen is the mother of the great Emperor Constantine and the discoverer of the true cross of Christ. She is revered for her great generosity in building up the Church of Christ in the Roman Empire. St. Helen was born sometime in the middle of the 3rd century. 
She was married to the emperor Constantius. She bore him his only son, Constantine. For political reasons, Constantius forsook St. Helen in order to marry another woman. But Constantine remained loyal to St. Helen, and on his father's death, he honored her as the mother of the sovereign and conferred upon St. Helen great wealth and power. Soon after this, she became a Christian. One historian wrote that under Constantine's influence, she became such a devout servant of God that one might believe her to have been from her very childhood a disciple of the Redeemer of mankind. St. Helen used this great wealth and influence to promote Christianity in the empire by building churches and encouraging the faithful. With Constantine's approval, St. Helen made a journey to the Holy Land to uncover the holy relics of Christ's crucifixion. At the time, Jerusalem was still rebuilding from the destruction the Roman Emperor Hadrian had wrought on the city. Hadrian had built a pagan temple over the site of Christ's tomb near Calvary. Helen was said to have ordered the temple to be removed and began the search for the true cross of Christ. During her excavation, St. Helen discovered three crosses. No one was sure which cross was the one Christ had been crucified on, so she brought a diseased woman who was at the point of death to touch each cross. Helen ordered her to touch the first and second crosses with no change in her condition. When she finally touched the third cross, she was miraculously healed, and Helen proclaimed that cross to be the authentic cross of Christ's passion and death. On the site where the true cross was discovered, Constantine built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. St. Helen also found the nails that were used in the crucifixion of Jesus and many other relics associated with the death of Christ. Many of these precious relics were distributed to different holy sites throughout the empire to encourage devotion and meditation on our Lord's Passion. She took large parts of the true cross back to her palace in Rome, which is now known as the Church of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem. I'm Bess Drozimski, and this has been another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe, www.thecatholiccafe.com. That was good. That's right. Thank you, Tom. I just uh, slipped that in there. Kind of throw the website information in there. Yeah. Um, what and if also, I have a question for you, Deacon You Joe? want to send me an email. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And what I should probably give my email address. That it would be a easy. good idea. It's Deacon Jeff at the Catholic Cafe. That was a softball, man. There you, you go. Missed. Thank you so much. That's why you get paid the big bucks, Tom. Hey, question. Yeah. What about tradition? You know, we've talked. We always talk about the tradition of the church and and where this stuff comes from. It's not some new thing. I, I take it. Yeah. You you want to probably figure out what did the early church say mm-hmm. about relics? Yes. Now, obviously, we've talked about scripture, and I can't imagine that people would. Uh, they knew the story of Elisha and Elijah mm-hmm. and the healings. Uh, they knew, uh, obviously, what was going on with the handkerchiefs and whatnot. And Peter and so, walking by. That's right. So I'm sure that the early church built on that right? and started figuring out, oh, we see what's going on here. And they started to further define that doctrine, mm-hmm. right, the teaching on relics. And so we see in the early church several writings, obviously after Scripture, that we want to read some of the early church fathers. And that's going to give us a little more insight. Right. For instance, if you're reading uh, the document, one of the early documents, around 150 A.D., uh, this document called the Martyrdom of Polycarp, it does say, 
we took up his bones as being more precious than the most exquisite jewels and more purified than gold and deposited them in a fitting place whither being gathered together as opportunity has allowed us with joy and rejoicing the Lord shall grant us to celebrate the anniversary of his martyrdom both in memory of those who have already finished their course and for the exercising and preparation of those yet to walk in their steps and so early on I mean this is 150 AD right they're already talking about preserving these bones of the martyrs, More. putting them in a fitted place, and then coming and, and doing masses, liturgies around those, and using these relics mm-hmm. as inspiration, mm-hmm. as points of grace and interaction with God as they were intended to be. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we see the, the first inklings of building churches over these holy sites. Sure. Here's another uh, quote from St. Ambrose of Milan, around 388 A.D. It says... You know, nay, you have yourselves seen that many are cleansed from evil spirits, that very many also, having touched with their hands the robe of the saints, are freed from those ailments which oppress them. You see that the miracles of old time are renewed, when through the coming of the Lord Jesus, grace was more largely shed forth upon the earth, and that many bodies are healed as it were, by the shadow of the holy bodies. How many napkins are passed about? How many garments laid upon the holy relics and endowed with healing power are claimed? All are glad to touch even the outside thread, and whosoever touches will be made whole. This is a... They're uh, all over it. Yeah, yeah. This is early... That's a big deal. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about in the, in the fourth century. Yeah. We're already seeing this understanding of what this doctrine truly is all about. St. Cyril of Jerusalem around the same time wrote, Even though the soul is not present in the body after death, a virtue resides in the body of the saints because of the righteous soul which has for so many years dwelled in it. Mm -hmm. That's what uh, we saw St. Ambrose talking about, that people were taking handkerchiefs and rubbing them to the bones of the saints, and they were healing people with those. Just like Paul's handkerchief healed those that were touched by it. You know, on one hand, it seems like the, the faithful don't really appreciate relics like they used to. Uh, but on the other hand, you, you kind of hear about abuses sometimes. Yeah, we got to get to the abuses part of this program because, you know, with everything, God has this purpose right. for us. And he lays it all out there and gives us all these blessings and, and all this goodness. And, and what we do we do? <laughs> right. And that, you know, that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Uh, it does. Right? You're the Garden right. of Eden. And we, we goof it up. Yep. Right? And so in the same way, there are certainly instances or at least potential instances of abuse when it comes to relics. Maybe that's the reason why there are so many that don't really pay that much attention to relics. They don't want to be perceived to abuse something. But you don't, don't want know. to I'm throw just... the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yep. You've, you've still got a prize there. Yeah. Right, but you know, some people today are doing things like selling relics. Yeah, that's forbidden by the church. That's against church law. You can't sell a relic. You can't sell a blessed item. We have false relics. We have people selling or distributing relics that aren't even true. Um, and it reminds me of a of an interesting little quote I came across from uh, Saint Augustine. Mm-hmm. And Saint Augustine talks about certain imposters. He talks about some people dressed as monks, and they're wandering about, and he says they're making profit by the sale of spurious relics. So early on, (laughs) this is late in the 4th century, we're already seeing this idea of people having, hey, we can make some money off of selling. We'll just pick up a bone from Uncle Fester there, 
and tell people this is, uh, you know, this is St. Ambrose. Or right. This is, and it's like, well, you know, unfortunately, again, that's the sinful, uh, the sinful man. Yeah. Now, some other abuses. We have people that maybe invest a little too much uh, power in those relics in terms of thinking that, that, that these relics have some kind of magical power, that they are empowered on their own. Right, right, right. That this is a that this is a magic thing that's going on. When in fact there is no magic here. Yeah. This is simply God using that relic as a conduit for His grace. Yeah. And of course, the last uh, thing I would talk about in terms of abuse is confusion between veneration and adoration. Right. They might be led into that. Now the church is totally against that. I've mentioned at the beginning of the show, the church understands the purpose of relics. Mm-hmm. We do not adore. And that's the important thing to understand. But some people might be led to that temptation. Going back to the Church Fathers, St. Jerome, that great biblical scholar, he had this to say about veneration and, and avoiding abuse. He said, We do not worship, we do not adore, for fear that we should bow down to the creature rather than to the Creator. But we venerate the relics of the martyrs in order to better adore him whose martyrs they are. And that great Council of Trent well, what did it say about abuse? In the invocation of saints, the veneration of relics, and the sacred use of images, every superstition shall be removed and all filthy lucre abolished. It also said, The visitation of relics must not be by any perverted into revelings and drunkenness. So you see, the church takes the veneration of relics so very seriously and insists upon avoiding any possibility of abuse. You know, you might say, well, we need to get rid of relics altogether. If, if we're going to have these possibilities for abuses, we just need to jettison the whole concept. That way, we're going to alleviate the potential for corruption, the potential for uh, temptation. Right. Right? The problem with that is, as I said before, you don't want to throw the baby out with right. the bathwater. Right. Because you've got to reconcile with Scripture. Right. You know, you cannot deny the scriptural and traditional evidence, if you want to call it evidence, but the examples of God's desire to use relics as his tool to dispense his graces, right? You can't, you can't deny the fact that God wants to cause healing. He wants to cause an increase and growth in our faith using these relics. And this is just one of the many tools that he uses. You're right. And, you know, obviously he wants us to recognize, venerate, and benefit from relics. So I hope this gives us all a better idea about what the church teaches about relics and why it's so important that we as Catholics recognize the power, the gift of the remains of those blessed ones who have gone before us. And so, Tom, I think we need to close in prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the saints that have come before us on whom the foundation of the church is laid help us to honor these saints and may they lead us closer to you we ask this through christ our lord amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen. amen thanks for listening to the catholic cafe if you'd like to contact deacon jeff send an email to deacon jeff at thecatholiccafe.com The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.